This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and UFC 285 is now in the rearview mirror. The goat rises and one of the female goats falls, as well as some prospects making some big noise at UFC 285 this past weekend in Las Vegas, Nevada. I happen to be on hand for the event, and it certainly was a memorable one and a great fight week leading up to the event. One that felt big, and I think that was really a cool thing to be a part of. It seemed like it had been a while since it had been one of those really big fight weeks that had that big fight week feel, and the results spoke for themselves. The fourth biggest gate in UFC history and the highest grossing heavyweight fight in UFC history as well between John Jones and Cyril Gaon as Jones makes it look easy against Cyril Gaon, finishing him just over two minutes into the very first round. And I've got a, you know, it's time for a mea culpa. That might have been one of the worst reads I've ever had for a mixed martial arts fight. Because I ignored the biggest question and overlooked it in favor of a bunch of smaller questions, which is never the right way to look at how a fight should play out. And people kept trying to tell me, you know, Surreal Gun got t- taken down several times by Francis Ngannou. You don't think John Jones is going to be able to take him down? And I never said, I don't think he will. But I did t- say that I thought that Surreal Gun would be training a lot more in terms of grappling for this fight than he would have for Francis Ngannou. And he probably did. But John Jones has been in the wrestling rooms for 20 plus years. There's a lot of ground to make up if you're Surreal Gun, and obviously not enough time to do it as John Jones just absolutely handles Surreal Gone in that fight. I'm actually curious to see how many strikes absorbed there were on the Jones side. I'm going to go check that out now. John Jones absorbed six significant strikes in that fight. Gone absorbed five, but was taken down twice and, of course, submitted. So, an unbelievable performance from John Jones. And for weeks, we've been hearing the goat, the, sorry, the pound-for-pound debate. Islam and Volk, Volk and Islam, who should it be? Volk said he was putting the pound-for-pound designation on the line against Islam Makhachev, who was putting his title on the line, and yet, after it's all said and done, Volk is still the pound-for-pound number one. That argument between these two very volatile sides was ended in two minutes and four seconds by John Jones, who is now once again listed as the number one pound-for-pound fighter in the UFC. After all of that back and forth, give your head a shake if you're a, uh, to steal that line from Pat Mayo. If you are one of those people that was dying on that hill of who should be the best pound for pound between Volk and Islam, doesn't matter now. Moot point. John Jones. And you know what? John Jones' skill set actually, while the case is usually made for a smaller fighter to be number one pound for pound, like if you were to take a smaller fighter skill set, like Demetrius Johnson, for example, and put him in a heavyweight's body or put him in a light heavyweight's body. That's what makes you the pound for pound. If you took John Jones and put him in any, put his skill set in any size fighter, I think you can make the case that he's the pound for pound best in the sport. Like if you took John Jones' well-rounded skills and put it into a flyweight body, bantamweight body, etc., does that person not beat the other people in that division? Because that, that's what pound for pound is, in my opinion. 
So I understand why people are making John Jones the pound for pound number one after that performance. It was one heck of a performance. And I said, I asked John Jones after the fight, I said, if people don't consider you to be the, the greatest of all time now, is that on them? And he said, yeah, it's on them. And I agree with him. Because if you don't think John Jones is the best pound for pound fighter, or sorry, the best fighter in MMA history, and you're, you're basically using a disqualifying argument. You're saying, because he has been implicated in various performance-enhancing drugs, complications, I guess, for lack of a better word, in his career, he is thus disqualified from being the greatest of all time. And I think if you want to make that argument, that's something that you can rationalize with yourself. For me, before this fight, I considered John Jones to be the greatest of all time. So this is just a cherry on top for me. For him to go up a division after three-plus years off and dominate Cyril Gaon, who I think very, high lo- uh, very highly of, I think that is self-explanatory. I mean, this guy is the greatest of all time. You know, should something happen in terms of the USADA test leading up to this fight? We can have that discussion then. But based on what we saw on Saturday, John Jones looked, I think, this is the most impressive performance of his career. Because while it's not like the Shogun Hua fight where he's 23 years old and he beats Shogun Hua in three rounds and looks, makes it look pretty easy, all things considered, then he goes and beats Rampage. You know, like a lot of these wins are very impressive wins. But to go up after three years, like how many first round finishes does he have? His last one was Chael Sonnen. Back in Newark, New Jersey, UFC 159. And of course, the UFC is heading back to Newark, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But he, he doesn't have historically a lot of first round finishes. And then he moves up a weight class and scores a first round submission in what is his the uh, second fastest finish of his UFC career. The fastest, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, the, the second fastest. The fastest being the, uh, the janitor, Vladimir Matsyushenko. UFC Live, Jones versus Matsyushenko. August 1st. 2010 is the fastest of his career before he was even champion. Which also featured the debut of Charles Oliveira on that card. But I digress. Who, who actually finished Darren Elkins faster than John Jones finished Matsyushenko that night? But John Jones, to me, I think, again, unless you want to use a disqualifying argument, I think it's pretty clear that he's the greatest of all time. His resume stands out above everybody else's. If you look at the quality of competition he's beaten, basically beating three generations of light heavyweights, now moving up to heavyweight and beating the number one guy, number one ranked guy, I should say, because I'm sure people are going to start talking in Ganu and all of that. But, I mean, if you said, if someone came up to me and said, Aaron, you have to bet your house on John Jones versus Francis Ngannou, well, like, I'm taking Jones all day after what I saw on Saturday. Because all the questions that I had about John Jones, for the most part, were answered, even though it was only two minutes and four seconds. You know, was there cage rust? It didn't appear so. Was he able to carry his weight and look good? Absolutely. In terms of cardio, he's never really had an issue with cardio, but at heavyweight, I thought maybe he would. We don't really know yet. He hasn't really been pushed, of course, because if he's, you know, he's had one fight, we just watched it. But I'm very curious to see how that holds up. That's kind of the still the lingering question from John Jones, if there still was one, is if it gets into deep water and he's carrying an extra 20, 30 pounds in the cage on fight night, how's his cardio going to hold up? 
But after what I saw on Saturday, I, I just have no doubts that John Jones is going to beat basically everybody put in front of him from here on out at heavyweight, at least for the foreseeable future. And Surreal Gunn just laid an egg. I mean, like, that is one of the all-time bad performances in the championship fight. I still think that Surreal Gunn, when he's placed into fights that are striker versus striker, has an advantage over anybody in the UFC. In, that, in the heavyweight division, that's most fights. But what happens if, like, a Jailton Almeida comes up? Like, if Jailton Almeida beats Rosenstroke and they match Surreal Gunn up against Jailton Almeida, like, who's favored in that fight? Probably Jailton. Because Surreal Gunn just has shown zero proficiency on the ground when it comes to defending in that position. Barely anything. I still think Surreal Gunn is a tremendous heavyweight, honestly, I do. But that performance was terrible. It was a bad matchup for him. I should have seen it from a mile away, but I was blinded by the small questions. And I mentioned Francis Ngannou before. And one major takeaway that I had from this particular fight is that while Noble, in cause, in terms of Francis Ngannou walking away from the UFC and them not being able to re-sign him because he had been looking to get things in his contract that no fighter had had before in terms of improving the conditions for fighters, which, again, very noble in cause. Not only were the UFC fine without him in this fight, they were probably better off without him. And let me explain why before you get on social media and start trying to ring me out here. Cyril Gon and John Jones did a gate of $15 million, just over $15 million at UFC 285. 19,471 attendants. Oh, sorry, it was over $12 million. $12.1 million gate. Again, the fourth highest in UFC history. If you were to replace Cyril Ghosn with Francis Ngannou, how much bigger is that fight? Is the gate $4 million more? Like, I think at best, you could say the gate would be $16 million versus $12 million if you did a super fight, basically a super fight between Jones and Ngannou. So you're talking about a $4 million gate differential. But how much money do you think Cyril Ghosn made for this fight before pay-per-view incentives. 750 maybe? Maybe 750? Maybe a million? Francis Ngannou admittedly turned down 7 to 8 million dollars. And then you look at the incentives and you know probably would have been a 11 or 12 million dollar payday for Francis Ngannou. But if you're the UFC, you built a fight that was almost as big as that. You still made the fourth highest gate ever. And you saved, let's say, six or seven million dollars in terms of fighter salary for the main event. And this is why, while there are many people that are advocating for higher, fire, higher fighter pay, I, I am among them, and I'm sure most of my colleagues are. I believe Bloody Elbow put out an article this week showing that the UFC had an even bigger profit and less revenue share last year. But we need to remember something that is so important that I always stress when it comes to the UFC versus other team sports. This isn't the team sport. This is a fight promotion. This is not a league. 
So the UFC are going to continue to operate this way because it's what makes the most money. This is a publicly traded company. Until something happens from a governmental level, because I don't think the fighters have the chutzpah to organize at this point in time. And I also think they don't have the power, really, to organize. I mean, that's what, what it comes down to is the UFC have made the brand bigger than the fighters. This was a prime example. Now, I know, of course, they sell this on the backs of uh, a returning John Jones and Cyril Gaon, a new division for John and all that. But the UFC can continue to create cards all the time with big headlining fighter, you know, big headlining attractions. They can just keep churning them out. I think it's really important to always frame it under the lens of this is not a league. Like, this is not a typical sports league. The UFC are going to continue to operate this way because they just showed this past weekend, without Francis and Ganu, they put on an event that was probably almost as big as it would have been had he been in the main event, and they did it while paying a fighter incrementally less. Or exponentially less. Not incrementally, exponentially less. So people can point fingers at the UFC and say, hey, you need to treat your fighters better and all of that, and maybe they will one day. But the incentive for them to do so is not there. Because once they cut ties with Francis Ngannou, who they offered a good chunk of money to, they were able to put on a, an event of, of a similar magnitude, I would say. And unfortunately for Francis Ngannou, he may have just set the fighters back by doing this. Because now the UFC looks at this and says, hmm, well, instead of paying Jones and Ngannou, a fight that the fans really want to see, that would draw really big numbers, we can replace it with a fight between Jones and Gon that the fans really want to see, and will draw really big numbers. They didn't lose much here by not having Ngannou on this card. They lost the attraction. And they didn't even lose the ability to say, we want to make the big fights. They offered Francis big money. Francis explained his reasoning for not wanting to resign with the UFC, for wanting to explore free agency. And I hope Francis does well. But ultimately, the UFC didn't learn any lessons here about why they should keep, you know, do whatever it takes to keep a fighter to build this kind of an attraction. In fact, they probably learned the opposite. So... While, again, I think Francis Ngannou has a, a good future in combat sports and can probably put together a big fight, I still believe that this fight showed that even without Francis Ngannou, the UFC were able to build a massive heavyweight attraction. Massive. And in fairness to Francis, had he fought Jones and had the result been similar to the one this past Saturday, where does it leave Francis? Like, what, what you know... Francis would have lost a lot of clout. At least Francis now can say, you know, John Jones never beat me. I'm the best heavyweight. I was the champion and I left. He will have that until they somehow manage to match him and John Jones up. So Francis still has a lot of selling power, I would say. Still, he would still be a big attraction if he gets signed. But none of that really benefits the fighters as a whole, which is what 
he made it out was his goal in terms of his next deal, was to find a way to help the fighters as a whole. Which, again, very noble in cause, but I do worry that something like this actually sets it back rather than (laughs) brings it forward because the UFC put on one heck of an event here that drew incredibly well. Felt big all week long. Felt like an international fight week, to be honest. You know, minus the convention or whatever, but this felt like a big fight week. The co-main event... This is, you know, what's weird. I had a dream that this would happen. That that Alexa Grasso would take Valentina Shevchenko's back and win by submission. And of course, dreams don't mean anything. Dreams aren't always going to become reality, but it did in this instance. Because when it happened, I was like, I've, I've seen this before. I've seen Alexa Grasso get the submission. And of course, I didn't predict Alexa Grasso was going to win the fight. You know, my pragmatic brain <laughs> will always override... My dreams. But we should have probably seen this coming. In all honesty, we should have seen this coming. Because Tyler Santos was never somebody who made a lot of noise that where people thought this is going to be the person to beat Valentina Shevchenko. I actually picked Tyler Santos, but didn't pick Grasso. I picked Tyler Santos with those big odds, but didn't take Grasso uh, in this fight. But in hindsight... It would have made a lot of sense to say Shevchenko's 34. She's slowing down. She showed a lot of different holes in her game against Tyler Santos. And while she did deserve that win, all it's going to take is one fighter to capitalize on a moment like that and get the win. And Alexa Grasso was that fighter. And kudos to her and kudos to the incredible athletes from Mexico who in three consecutive months have captured UFC gold. Moreno in January. Yair Rodriguez interim championship in February and now Grasso in March. And we may see Irene Aldana fight Nunes later this year to potentially become a fourth. So the growth of MMA in Mexico, I mean, this is a market that the UFC have coveted for such a long time, since the days of Cain Velasquez, who was Mexican-American. We've got three Mexican-born fighters becoming champions. A really incredible accomplishment for that country. And the biggest of all of them is Alexa Grasso beating an undefeated at flyweight Valentina Shevchenko. Because her one loss on the regional scene to Liz Carmouche was at bantamweight. And her two losses to Nunes at bantamweight. This is the first time that she has been really finished in the cage because the the TKO from Liz Carmouche was actually a, a... doctor stoppage in between rounds that Shevchenko disagreed with. You saw Grasso lock in that rear naked choke, basically a face crank, really deep face crank. And Shevchenko just hesitantly tapping. The single tap, the the tap that showed, you know, I can't hang on for any longer. And, uh, you know, well, checkmate, you got me. And, uh, Here's the thing. We're seeing a lot of people now saying, oh, Alexa Grasso is going to lose her next fight. You know, if they do an instant rematch, Grasso is going to lose. What leads you to believe that a 29-year-old Alexa Grasso, who's in her basically entering her prime, still hasn't entered her prime years as a fighter, is not going to continue to get better and better and better? Because she's shown so many skills in recent years 
and so much improvement in recent years that her ability to beat someone like Shevchenko, and also, even though she got the finish there, you know, had that round somehow come to, to a conclusion and Shevchenko was able to hold on for 26 seconds longer, that's still a 2-2 fight going into the fifth round. Against Shevchenko. It's not like this was a one-sided beating and then Grasso found a choke. This was a close fight. So for people to say, well, Blanchfield's going to run through Grasso or... Um, you know, if Grasso faces Manon Fioro, it's going to be, you know, Fioro's going to be... I, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced that Grasso is a lame duck champion. I think at age 29, with her getting better and better, and her showing these kind of improvements, and of course beating Shevchenko, I think that a lot of people are writing her off. She's currently the number two ranked pound-for-pound women's fighter in the sport, which I don't really agree with. Like, I think that Zhang Weili has shown a better body of work. But I do think that Grasso could be the champion for a while. Like, I don't think this is, I think if she rematches Shevchenko, we saw how close this fight was. We could see her beat Shevchenko again. Blanchfield looked great on the feet against Andrade, but looked, didn't look good against JJ Aldridge, who's fighting this weekend, coincidentally. So, let's not write Grasso off. This was, this was a good win. Like, this was not a fluke. She was hanging with Shevchenko for that whole fight. She escaped Shevchenko's crucifix, which is one of her best weapons that we've seen over the years, and managed to come back and win the fight. So let's give Alexa Grasso her flowers. She deserves it. She doesn't deserve to have people diminishing her already. This is a big win. This is a big win, and a win that she deserved, a win that she trained hard for, and a win where she was able to find... A fighter who never makes mistakes, for the most part, make a mistake that cost her the fight, and one that Grasso was drilling in the locker room before the fight. She showed a video of that on her social media. So, kudos to Alexa Grasso. And I kind of owe Alexa Grasso an apology. I was doing interviews this past week. I was really under the weather. And uh, my voice just kept going out on me during interviews. In two different interviews with her, my voice just went out. So, as I looked at it the second time, I was like, I don't know if it's you, but my voice just keeps going out when I'm talking to you. It happened in some other interviews, but never in two different interviews in the same week. Man, I was I was struggling last week, but we got through it. Perhaps the worst thing that happened to me last week was, you know, I bring my camera with me to take kind of cool behind-the-scenes shots. And uh, I left it in my hotel room before the event. Or so I thought. I came back. I thought it was going to be on the table in my hotel room. It wasn't there. It was in my bag that I had with me at the event. So I have some pictures from prior to, to the event itself, but the best pictures always come from the event. I might hold those pictures until the next card in April when I'm in Miami and just take some shots there. and Or I'll just take some family pictures and develop what I have. But I, that was a real bummer. That was... that. I probably got eight to ten pictures all week because I was saving the film for the event. Not great. Not great. But it is what it is. I was under the weather and I wasn't thinking properly last week. Let's just put it that way. I just, my brain was not functioning at 100%. It was at like a 70% clip last week. My brain's never really at 100%, I'd say. 
If you, if you can operate with your brain at 100%, like I, I envy you because my brain seldom clicks at that kind of, clicks on all cylinders like that. See right there, I just made a mistake. So Alexa Grasso is your new women's flyweight champion. Now in terms of what's next for her, I think you got to do the Shevchenko rematch, you know, as much as you want to see these fresh matchups. And I was thinking about this yesterday. If you go division by division, think of how many basically immediate rematches we've had. And the reason I say basically is there have been some fights in between, but for the champion, it was an immediate rematch. You have Davison against Moreno, and Juan Moreno had to fight once in between. It was still an immediate rematch for Davison. You had Aljamain against Jan, and again, while Jan had to fight Sanhagen in between for an interim, for Aljo was basically an immediate rematch. At featherweight, we've had... It uh, wasn't an immediate rematch with Max, but we had three rematches, three three fights for Volk and Max, but, that, you know, that's not an immediate rematch. At lightweight, no immediate rematches, but here's welterweight. We're going to have the Usman and Edwards rematch. Middleweight, we're going to have the Izzy and Alex Pereira immediate rematch. Light heavyweight, Glover versus Prochaska was booked and fell apart because of injury, but that was booked, an immediate rematch there. And at heavyweight, the, the whole thing's been thrown up in the, in, you know, everything's up in the air right now at heavyweight. And now we're going to see, we also saw Juliana Pena and Nunez immediate rematch. And now we're going to see, most likely, a Grasso and Shevchenko immediate rematch. So, like, yeah, we're talking about 70% of the divisions there, we've seen immediate rematches for champions in recent years. So this has become a trend. Because what's also become a trend is these seemingly unbeatable champions are losing. So when you see odds like Grasso plus 500 in a championship fight... Take those odds. Like, if, if Irina Aldana is plus 400, plus 500 against Nunes, take those odds. Because everybody's catching up. The field is starting to catch up with these dominant champions. And one thing that's really hard about the sport is to be a dominant champion. That's why GSP is considered one of the all-time greats. Because he was a dominant champion and defended and defended and defended until he couldn't do it any longer mentally. <laughs> until he mentally broke down and said, I'm done doing this. <laughs> like, he was champion at the time and walked away from the sport for three years because he just couldn't do it anymore. And John Jones, he's had roller coasters. He hasn't really been consistently the defending champ at light heavyweight. But that's another reason for his greatness is just time and time again, defending and defending and defending. So we're seeing a lot of these instant rematches because we're seeing a lot of underdogs come through and beating the seemingly unbeatable. Which is great for the sport. Creates a lot of drama for all of these title fights. Because you weren't really on the edge of your seat for Grasso versus Shevchenko. But in that first round, when Grasso was landing those stiff jabs, you're like, okay, she's got something here. But these immediate rematches are becoming more and more frequent because we're seeing more and more frequently these dominant champions get beaten. You don't usually see immediate rematches unless it's warranted with a dominant champion losing, or in the case of Jan versus Sterling, you know, there was that knee situation which left unfinished business. So it's really interesting to see how much of this we've seen in the last year. How many of these dominant champions are losing. And Valentina Shevchenko is the latest in that group. Shavkat Rachmanov defeats Jeff Neal. Third round. About 40 seconds left in the fight. Locks on a standing rear naked choke that submits Jeff Neal. 
in an otherwise great fight. Well, not otherwise. That was part of the great fight. But fight of the night, awesome fight. Jeff Neal missed weight for it. The UFC gave him a bonus anyways. <laughs> they broke precedent. Just like they broke precedent with John Jones walking out second against Surreal Gan. But I'm not going to get into that any further. I had enough people yelling at me by, by saying it was somewhat disrespectful for the UFC to have Gan walk out first, despite being the number one ranked heavyweight. I will say some people made some compelling arguments. They brought up Brock Lesnar versus Mark Hunt. Valid. They brought up interim champions, uh, sorry, champions in other weight classes like Max Holloway against Poirier and Henry Cejudo against Marlon Moraes. Also somewhat valid. I mean, there's championship hardware at, you know, coming into that fight at least. I think Hunt versus Brock Lesnar is probably the best example. But historically, we haven't seen the lower-ranked fighter walk out second. So that, that's the only thing I was saying. But, uh, yeah. Shavkat Rachmanov is an incredible prospect. And this guy, I think, will be fighting for the welterweight championship by the end of 2024. I don't think he's in the cards this year. But I would like to see him. Let's take pull up the old rankings here. Now, him and Gilbert Burns train together. I don't know if that would preclude them from facing one another. But we've got Burns, Masvidal coming up. Like, Bilal Muhammad? If Hamzat stays down, Hamzat versus Shavkat Rachmanov would be an unbelievable. You could headline a pay-per-view with that, I think. That would be for the hardcores, but I mean... That would be an amazing fight, but it looks like Hamzat is moving to middleweight. So, if, if hypothetically, Hamzat moves to middleweight... I think you got to do Rachmanov versus Burns or Chemayev. Oh, sorry, Burns, Muhammad, or Colby Covington next. Or the loser of Edwards and Usman. Like, you got to keep moving Shavkat up the ladder. And I think after that fight against Jeff Neal, he looked human. He looked like somebody who could be beat with the right game plan. So, it's always great to see these fighters get thrown into the fire. Like, we saw Shemaev against Gilbert Burns thrown into the deep end. We saw Rachmanov against Jeff Neal. I think I consider that to be pretty much the deep end as well. Jeff Neal's a heck of a fighter. So, I'm eager to see what they do with Rachmanov next. But, man, this guy is no longer a prospect. He's now a contender. He went from prospect to contender after that win. Because even though, and you know, when I interviewed him, he made a good point here. Because I said, like, this is kind of like your Hamza Shemaya versus Burns fight. And he was like, well, I wasn't really ever losing this fight. Like, if you go round by round, I think he was on his way to losing the third round. But he definitely won the first two. So he makes a, good, a valid point there. He's like, I wasn't really ever, I didn't lose any rounds. Wasn't that close. And I think that's the level that we hold him up to, that we hold Rachmanov up to. It's like, when it's close, it seems like it shouldn't be. It's like expectancy bias. Shout out to the guys at Severe MMA for basically making this a thing in uh, <laughs> in MMA. But basically, I think everybody thought Rachmanov would roll. Looks kind of human. But we have to remember the fact. Like, he wasn't losing that fight. He wasn't going to lose that fight unless he got finished in, at around the mark where he finished Jeff Neal. You have to give Jeff Neal credit, though. He put up a great fight. Mateusz Gamrod versus Jalen Turner. And this was an interesting one. I haven't had a chance to watch it back. The only round I watched was the first round. And I, I'm just shocked that two of the judges gave Gamrod that round. Now, maybe they didn't realize that he got knocked down towards the end. But to me, that was pretty much a clear Turner round. Like, I mean, a lot of people were arguing with me on social media because I gave it a 10-9 Turner. But as long as you credit, if you credit Turner for the knockdown, that's his round. Because Gamrod had control and did nothing with it. Landed one ground strike. 
I'm just concerned with Mateo's Gamrot fights. They're not getting judged the way that they should be, in my opinion. And you know me, I'm I'm one of the last people to be critical of the judges. And this is one of those real minutia ones where if you're really going to stick to the criteria, I think you have to give turn to that first round. Now, again, I didn't watch the second and third round because I was doing an interview with Cody Garbrandt at the time. So I can't really give you a great sense of the rest of that fight, whether Turner should have won or not. But it seems like with the criteria, Mateus Gamrot has seemingly been able to utilize a lot of control and still get rounds. It's confusing to me. Anyhow, Bo Nickel defeats Jamie Pickett. This was a successful UFC debut for the highly touted prospect, who was a minus 2,200 favorite in this fight. But it seems like there was a groin strike, or at least Pickett's camp is saying there was a groin strike, that when watching it in real time, I didn't even notice. But Bo is denying that he hit him in the groin, and now all these people are turning on Bo Nickel like this is an illegitimate win. I mean, at worst, it's going to be a no contest. Not like Bo Nickel like cheated. The referee didn't see it. This happens in fights all the time. Now, for him to not acknowledge it, I think is interesting, but... I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not Jamie Pickett. I, I I can't say whether or not it, it hit him in the groin. Definitively. It sure looked like it on the replay. But, again, at worst, that's a no contest. They, but I don't think that's going to be overturned. I'd be shocked if they overturned that to a no contest. Because the cage side officials have to notice something there and, and have to... After the fight, tell the referee, yeah, there was a groin strike there. And then then you can call it a no contest on the spot. But if you miss that during the fight, I don't think they're going to go back and retroactively make that a no contest. I'd be very surprised. Uh, Cody Garbrandt defeats uh, Trevin Jones. He looked like he had a lot of swagger in this fight. And he told me after the fight that he actually suffered a stinger earlier in the day and couldn't feel his left arm for most of the fight. She said it never got better. <laughs> it's like, how these guys go out and do this? When they're that compromised, it's just unbelievable to me. But nice to see Cody Garbrandt back in the win column. If he can fight smart like this and not get baited into firefights, I still think he can be a ranked bantamweight in the UFC. He might actually already be ranked. I don't, I don't think he is, but let me, let me double-check that because I don't want to make a bold statement and then just people will say, well, he's already ranked. No, he's not ranked right now at, uh, at bantamweight. But I think if, if he can keep fighting a smart game plan, He's training at a new camp now. I think we could see him at least become a ranked fighter again. I don't think that's outside the realm of possibility. I think championship days are probably behind him at this point. But I do think that Garbrandt, this was the kind of win he needed. This was a good matchup because it was a winnable fight for him. Seemed like he was going through a lot of issues. Like He, he laid his soul bare prior to this fight, talking about the last one, about Kai Kara-France fight, that just things were not going his way at all in life. He was going through a divorce and like all of these different things that happened to him. So it was nice to see him get some stability back in his life, move to a new place, move to a new camp, and hopefully get a fresh start in his career. Drakus Duplessis defeats Derek Brunson, TKO corner stoppage with one second left in the second round. Yeah, that was a beating towards the end of that fight. But that was a, a back-and-forth frenetic fight. Like I know they gave Rachmanov a Neil fight of the night, but you could make a case to play C and Brunson 
were in that conversation too. Now, Duplessis ranked number sixth in the middleweight division. And looking up the ladder, you got Paulo Costa. That would be a great fight. Vittori, great fight. I think Sean Strickland, who's ranked seventh, would be a great fight for him. Cannoneer, solid fight. Basically, every option up or down the ladder for Duplessis, you know, I guess from Strickland up is a, I think, a good matchup. So let's see how that goes. But I, I think that uh, there's a lot of good fights out there for Drake's Duplessis. And that he can move his way up fairly quickly. How old is he anyways? He's 29. Just turned 29. So he's just entering his prime now. Looks like the real deal. Good, Solid grappler. Has crazy power. Might, might have more power than anybody outside of Alex Pereira in the middleweight division. He's got devastating power. Just like cannons. Always firing on all cylinders with that guy. So he beats Derek Brunson. I think the blonde Brunson era might be over in terms of his uh, success. Although he had some, he had some opportunities in that in that fight. It wasn't one side one way traffic. So kudos to Drikas Duplessis. Amanda Hibas defeats Viviane Araujo. 30-26, 30-27, Great showing for Amanda Hibas, and I think that uh, she can fight a strawweight or flyweight, and I think that she can hang with just about anybody. She's really improved a lot. Does get hit a lot, which I think is going to be a problem if she faces like the Manon Fioros of the world or people with big power. But I think otherwise she has the well-rounded game to give anybody problems in either division. So kudos to Amanda Hibas. That's a big win for her. The only Canadian on the card, Mark andre Berrio, just put a pace on Julian Marquez. Landed over 75 significant strikes in the second round. Just overwhelmed Marquez en route to a TKO victory. Barrio is a tough out because he's he's got a good chin, he's got crazy cardio, and he can turn it up when he sees that his opponent is hurt. So a big win for Power Bar, and nice to see him back in the win column after that rib injury in his last fight, beating uh, Julian Marquez, who uh, has moved over to Factory X for his training, alongside Mark Montoya. Now let's look at the early prelims. So Ian Gary was in trouble in the first round. But even with that, I think this was the most complete performance of his UFC career. And I actually, you know, a lot of people, I think, went the other way on this. They said, well, this guy got tagged by Song Kanan in the first, could have gotten finished, was in big trouble. This guy is, is not the prospect we think he is. I actually see it the other way. I think because he handled that adversity and because he was able to make adjustments that he show, he's showing the fight IQ of a good fighter. He says he, he could pinpoint the moment where he went wrong that led to that knockdown. I actually think Ian Gary does have a great future in the sport. I really do. I wasn't convinced before this fight, to be honest. Like, I thought that he was, you know, kind of a middling prospect at that point in time. After this fight, I'm actually more convinced of his upside after that win against Son Kanan. Because he overcame the adversity. He beat him at his own game down the stretch with, with really good pinpoint striking. Great timing. This guy's got a lot of things that can't be taught. Great instincts in the cage. High fight IQ. I think Ian Gary actually has a really good future in this sport. And I, I, you know, again, before this fight, I wasn't convinced. This was actually the fight that sold me on him. Even though Sunkanon isn't necessarily the biggest name, he's a good fighter. But it was more how he handled that fight, how he made strategic adjustments, the resilience he showed, the smarts he showed. I think that he definitely 
is somebody to watch. Only 25 years of age. It's a very bright future in a sport. Cameron Simon defeats Mana Martinez majority decision. There was a point taken away from him for, uh, I guess, repeated fouls, you could say. And uh, he ends up winning uh, the majority decision. Another guy who looks like a good prospect, but him and I were talking afterwards when I interviewed him, and I said basically, like, your gift is kind of your curse. You're in there. You're aggressive. You're creative. But as a result of that, you're a little bit reckless. And I think that if he can find a way to elevate those parts of his game and raise his fight IQ in the process, I mean, this is a young kid. I think he's 23. He can be a really good fighter. I mean, he's already a really good fighter, but he could, he could be like a ranked bantamweight, which is hard to do in this day and age. I think he's got really good upside. I just think that um, his aggression is a little bit too reckless at times. And it leaves openings. He gets hit. If his opponents are smart and they wait for him, they can take advantage. If they can get him to slow down a little bit and have more controlled aggression and more controlled creativity, I think the sky's the limit for him, really. Uh, Tabitha Ricci defeats Jessica Panay via armbar, second round. Solid showing for Ricci. For Farid Basharat defeats uh, Damon Blackshear, unanimous decision across the board. And Loik Rajabov defeats Esteban Rebovic. Rebovic. Rebovic? Rebovic? I don't know. 29-28 across the board. Solid uh, showing for Loik Rajabov. He showed a lot of great cardio for somebody who took that fight on short notice. Fight bonuses, Shavkat and Neil, as I mentioned, fight of the night. Performance bonuses for John Jones, Alexa Grasso, and Bo Nickel. So congratulations to all of those involved in what was a great card. Fantastic card. And uh, it looks like the UFC are going to go ahead with John Jones and Stipe for International Fight Week. That is one heck of a fight. If there's somebody who's going to be able to take John Jones into deeper waters, Stipe is that guy. Because I think that Stipe can keep it on the feet. At least better than Cyril Ghosn could. And I think that uh, his boxing could give John Jones some problems. But John Jones opened as a tremendous favorite in that fight, which I, I think, based on what we saw on Saturday, is certainly justified. So that puts a bow on UFC 285, uh, which I think was a uh, a really exciting card where we learned a lot. And I always like those kind of fights. We learned a lot about Shotcut. We learned a lot about John Jones. We learned a lot about Ian Gary. We learned about where Cody Garbrandt's at right now. Maybe how he's going to be making adjustments to his game. I think we learned a lot about Amanda Hibas and how good she can be in the flyweight division because Vivian Rougeau is certainly no joke. And we learned that the judges uh, ignore damage when it comes to Mateo's Gamrot fights. And I, I, I don't say that Brazenly. Because I think if you go back and you look at Gamrot versus Armand Sarukian, like I thought if you're looking at the criteria, that was as as clear a fight as you could get for Sarukian. I even got into it with some judges talking about this one because I, I felt very strongly about it. But it is what it is. Kudos to Gamrot for the win. I think Gamrot's a talented guy. I just don't think that his fighting style is criteria friendly. That's all it is. It's just grapple, control, control. Which is fine, and it's going to win him a lot of fights. It's going to keep him at the top of the lightweight division for a long time. He's a great, very talented fighter. 
Certainly not trying to take anything away from his win. Uh, especially having not watched the second and third rounds properly. But I thought that if you're going to go by the criteria in that first round, it was uh, as long as you recognize that there was a knockdown there, that that's a jail and turnaround. But that's just me. Later on in the program, we're going to be joined by Mirab Dualashvili talking about his main event against Piotr Jan, which is a great main event that's this weekend at the theater at Virgin Hotels. They're doing the card there because I believe the Power Slap finale is taking place at the Apex. I don't know if it's the finale or the card itself. I think it's the finale, which is the card itself. I think it's like considered to be Power Slap 1. I don't know. I don't cover Power Slap, so I couldn't tell you. But I do know that that's the reason why this event is taking place at the theater at Virgin Hotels. Which I drove by the other day. Nice place. I think it's right at the end of the strip. So let's look at this card. Because I think Jan versus Dvalashvili is an excellent, excellent, excellent main event. And I think the co-main event, Volkov versus Romanov, is is one of the better co-main events we've seen for a fight night in some time. In fact, this card as a whole is quite good. And we've got a really good slate of fights coming up over the next month, month and a half. But let's start with the main event. Piotr Jan taking on Marab Dawalashvili. Jan is a favorite in this one at minus 280. The comeback on Marab Dawalashvili is plus 210. Now, this is an interesting one because it's a five-round fight. And again, you got to think criteria. And that's why I think Piotr Jan has the advantage in this fight. I think Dawalashvili is going to really try to push the agenda for getting Jan onto the ground, which I think is the right move for him. But I think over the course of five rounds, the work that Jan will do on the feet is going to win him this fight. The Jan by decision prop at plus 120, I think, is the way you want to go. But you could also use Jan as a parlay piece. And, you know, it's too bad because I actually think Rob Dwellers really is a great fighter and I think that he is a championship caliber fighter at bantamweight. But looking at Jan's recent fights, like they've all been really close. You know, I think he's on, what, a three-fight losing skid now. The first fight against Sterling, he was en route to winning, but obviously landed an illegal knee, lost that fight by disqualification. The second fight against Sterling was a very close fight. The fight against O'Malley was a controversial fight and uh, one that I scored for Jan, but another very close fight. So he's been in close fights with top competition. This could be a close fight too. I wonder what the split decision prop on this one is, if there is one. Because that's one you might want to take a look at, is the split decision prop. You have five rounds to play with. Another thing you might want to look at, maybe even, is the draw. Because when you've got a grappling-heavy guy like Dualajvili, you might be able to find a 10-8 round in there if he's able to take this fight down. So that's another one, if you're really looking to get frisky. Draw is uh, plus 5,000. Might be worth a little sprinkle. Just saying. Just saying. But this could be a really uh, a really exciting fight, I think. And uh, again, I just I give Jan the advantage, uh, like a clear advantage on the feet. And the feet is where the damage takes place for the most part. Um, so we'll see. But hey, Rob Dwellers really could take him down in every round and, and punish him on the ground. So it's certainly not a slam dunk for Piotr Jan. That's just the way that I'm, I'm leaning. Alexander Romanov, minus 164. Alexander Volkov, plus 128. I would lean Romanov here. Um, 
if you can get Romanov by decision in the plus 400 range, I think that's kind of where I'm leaning. The submission, I think, also is uh, one that you could look at because I think if Romanov is able to take him down, like so many others have been able to do to Alexander Volkov, I think if he can you know, look for an arm triangle, key lock, all kinds of different submissions on the ground are going to give Volkov problems. I think stylistically this is just a bad matchup for Volkov, to be honest. I think if Romanov can get this to the ground, which he's been able to do historically against a lot of different guys, and I know he wasn't able to in his last fight against Tybura, but I think these are two different kinds of fighters, and I think that Volkov has shown in the past that once he's taken down, he does not have a lot of success. I think that's uh, why I lean Romanov in this one and why he's the favorite here. Saeed Nurmagomedov, minus 250. Jonathan Martinez, plus 190. I might lean Martinez here as a dog or pass, honestly. I think this is more of a striking-based fight. I was really impressed with the heavy striking of Jonathan Martinez in that fight against Cub Swanson last time out. Saeed Nurmagomedov with a, a big win over Kakharmanov in his last fight. But he was losing that fight. And um, I think in this situation, Martinez is somebody who could win this fight by decision. And I, I like the plus 370 on that prop. And that's probably what I'll end up going with is the Martinez decision prop. I think he's going to be able to outland Saeed Nurmagomedov over the course of three rounds um, and make it a potentially tough night at the office for Saeed Nurmagomedov. Saeed Nurmagomedov, I think, has a lot of success when he has striking advantages over people. I just don't think he has one here against Jonathan Martinez. So uh, as a, a pretty big dog, I think Martinez has good value. Ricardo Hamosh, minus 400. Austin Lingo, plus 285. I, I understand this line. Austin Lingo's been out of action for some time. This is a really tough matchup for him to come back to. I'd be interested to see whether Hamos is able to win inside the distance or if it ends up being a decision because Lingo is notoriously tough, but I think that Hamos is the side here. Vitor Petrino against Anton Turcali. I'm going to have to look back at Vitor Petrino because I, I can't remember his fight. I'm going to just go and take a look. So he's only 25 years old. And he, on the Contender Series, defeated Hodolfo Bellato. He was a minus 160 favorite in that fight. You know what? If you're giving me a 25-year-old Brazilian prospect against Turcali, who I really do not think much of, to be honest. I know he's 8-1. He lost to Jailton. But I didn't think much of him on Contender Series. I think he's a good fighter, well-rounded fighter, but I just don't see a whole lot of promise for him in his career. I think I'm going to go with the younger prospect in Petrino at minus 113. This line's been moving a little bit, and it's been moving, um, I think, in the wrong direction because Petrino opened as a minus 170 favorite. Uh, Cedric Dumas taking on Josh Fremd. Interesting one. This is the uh, debut of, of Dumas, who is uh, considered one of the toughest people in Miami. I was reading about how he has like a real street fighting. He was almost like a protege of, of Jorge Masvidal. He's got like this street fighting background. I've always liked the way the Fremd fights. He's long. You know, the submission prop is always live with Josh Fremd because he's got those long limbs. So that may be one way you want to approach it. The Fremd submission prop is plus 750 right now. That might be actually how I how I uh, approach it, to be honest. But uh, I'd have to look into Dumas's game a little bit more. But you know, Fremd is always live for these um, for these submissions because he has those long. He's like six foot four, really big for the for the division. 
Dumas, though, undefeated. So uh, we'll see how he looks. He is uh, 27 years of age. And the thing is, he just doesn't have wins over a lot of really good competition. His best win is the one in the Contender Series. He was an underdog in that fight as well. So I might, I might, might be interested in looking at Fremd in this fight, to be honest. But I'm not 100% sure as of yet. Something I'll know a little bit more of as the week goes on. Carl Williams taking on Lukasz Berseski, Berseski, another uh, alum from the uh, Contender Series. And Carl Williams won against Jimmy Lawson on the Contender Series as an underdog. Looked really good in that fight, if I recall. And uh, Berzeski lost a split decision to Martin Budai in his UFC debut. And uh, he was a, a, a really big underdog in that fight and, and gave Budai all he could handle. He, that guy lands big shots, does uh, Berzeski. So I'll be interested to see how he looks. I thought against Jimmy Lawson, he looked very good against a guy with a wrestling background. But how will he look against a guy with a good striking background? Especially being removed, what, like two years removed from a knockout or a triangle choke loss to Jason Butcher. It's actually one year removed, basically. You got triangle choked by Jason Butcher, who fought in the UFC some time ago, if I recall. Or maybe it was Bellator, sorry, he fought in Bellator some time ago. So, interested to see how that one looks. Carl Williams uh, looks like a decent prospect, but Brzezki, I was pretty impressed with, actually, in his last fight. I thought he was landing pretty big bombs, has good power. So, might be somebody that uh, I would sprinkle on as an underdog there. Uh, JJ Aldridge, minus 400. Ariane Lipsky, plus 285. If you like the, the Aldridge side, take the decisions, plus 100. I think that's how she wins this fight. Although, Lipsky is a very aggressive fighter and sometimes gets into trouble for that reason. So, Lipsky inside the distance is plus 750. I mean, that's not, a, that's not a bad line either if you want to get some action on somebody who's a very aggressive fighter. That's plus 285. Like, I don't think he's going to win a decision over Aldrich. Probably work, do that as an insurance plan if you take Aldrich decision. Uh, Mario Batista minus 1,100 against Guido Canetti is plus 600. Canetti's still going strong in his 40s in the bantamweight division. But uh, this might be Biting off a little bit more than he can chew because Mario Batista has looked really good in recent fights. Davy Grant minus 156 against Rafael Asuncao, plus 122. Asuncao looked great in his last fight. Davy Grant has had a bit of a career renaissance of his own. This should be a fun one. I don't really have a side in this one. I, I, uh, I just am looking forward to seeing this fight. Bruno Silva, minus 205. Tyson Nam, plus 158. Uh, this should be an interesting one. I think that Nam has the power to put anybody out. But Silva's looked really good in his recent fights as well. I, I understand why Silva's the favorite here. I probably would, would lean Silva. Victor Henry, minus 158. Tony Gravely, plus 124. This is uh, another interesting one. Two guys that did a lot, have done a lot on the regional scene now facing one another in the UFC. The uh, Gravely decision is something that stands out to me a little bit, but uh, I'm not too sure about this one. That's another one I'll probably just pass on altogether. So that's your UFC card for this weekend. We also have a, a solid... You know, it's funny. I was interviewing Islam Makhachev at the event on Saturday. 
And I said, oh, what brings you to Vegas? And he goes, I'm in, I'm in uh, the U.S. because I'm cornering my, my cousin Usman. And I was like, oh, when's that fight? He was like, it's on <laughs> it was on Friday. And I was like, wow, okay. It just seems like yesterday that Usman won the title. And now the tournament's starting already. When did he fight? When was that fight where he beat uh, Pitbull? That was November. So that was relatively recently. We're talking like three months ago. But he's a massive favorite against Benson Henderson. Minus 1,800 favorite against Benson Henderson for the opening round of the tournament. And you've got Alexander Shabli against Tofik Musayev. That's an awesome fight. And that is, uh, I believe, your co-main event. In the heavyweight division, Valentin Moldovsky against Linton Vassell. I, I like that fight a lot, too. And perhaps my favorite fight on this entire card is Michael Venom Page against Goichi Yamauchi. That is a fun fight. Canadian Josh Hill on the card as well against Cass Bell. You've got Dolvachan Yagshimurodov against Julius Anglitskis. I uh, said that just so I could prove that I could say those names. And uh, Khalid Murdazaliev, who was in uh, one of the more lopsided decision, one of the more lopsided fights in UFC history against uh, CB Dalloway, against Tony Johnson. So, um, good card, really, for the UFC. And Enrique Barzolo against Eric Perez, uh, two UFC vets. So, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that one. Really solid card, Bellator 292. That's this Friday, so I will be checking that out. In addition to, of course, the uh, UFC card on Saturday. So that is uh, your preview for this weekend's cards. I had a chance to speak with Michael Chandler at the event. It seems like this uh, tough season is going to be um, a good one. Because it seems like they're, they're not really friends anymore. Uh, if they were ever friends. You know, like Stitch Durand was never his friend. So let's uh, let's see how that goes. I'm uh, very interested to see the season. And it's now been confirmed that the Canadian Brad Katona is one of the contestants on the show. Nice to see Brad back in the fold. Hopefully uh, he's able to add a second uh, Ultimate Fighter chip to his collection. But we will see. You know, Chandler got a little bit funny when I asked him about Brad Katona. So I'm curious about what happened there and why he um, kind of shelled up a little bit and was giving me some weird answers. Feels like something must have happened on the show surrounding Brad Katona. Because, I mean, he's one of Connor's guys. He trains at SBG and he's being coached by Chandler. Also, UFC 288 will be coming to Newark, New Jersey. On May the 6th, and uh, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's looking like Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo is going to be the main event, but we just saw Sterling and Sean O'Malley going back and forth on social media, so who knows what's happening. What has been announced is Charles Oliveira against Benil Dariush, Bryce Mitchell against JSP, Jonathan Pierce, Canadian Charles Jordan against Crone Gracie returning after four years away. We've also got Marina Rodriguez against Virna Janjijoba. Devin Clark against Kennedy and Zechaku. Andre Petrovsky against Armin Petrosian, AP versus AP. Nate Manus against Jalmus Jumagulov, who had said he was retired uh, like four months ago and is now back on the UFC cards. Chaos Williams welcoming Rolando Bedoya to the UFC. And Kid Kavembo, Johnny Munoz Jr., taking on Daniel Santos. I think that's Willy Cat. Willy Cat. That should be a, a fun one. And uh, Jessica Andrade against Jan Xiaonan also... Uh, Expected to be on that card. So, should be a fun one. They were talking about at least toying with the idea of having this card in Vegas because the Canelo fight moved 
to Mexico. It was supposed to be at T-Mobile. Moved to Mexico. The venue was empty. And they were thinking of doing a Cinco de Mayo blowout at T-Mobile. But then basically two days later, after they were talking about that, they announced that it will be at the Prudential Center in Newark. So maybe the site fee got increased. Who knows? But, um, you know, Aljamain Sterling is not allowed to fight in New York because he had, apparently, from what I understand, he had a CT scan years and years ago that was done by kind of a Mickey Mouse operation. And there was like some sort of irregularity in that CT scan. And every CT scan he's had since, that hasn't come up. But in New York, if you have one negative, one weird CT scan, they won't ever let you fight. So he can't fight in his home state because of this going to some weird place to get a CT scan. Odd. But uh, it is what it is. That's strange. So Aljo will fight at the next closest state, which would be New Jersey. At least the closest state to uh, his stomping grounds of Long Island, New York. This venue is not very nice, though. I've been to Prudential Center before. I was at the last Newark card, Colby Covington against uh, Robbie Lawler. Backstage with him and the uh, the Trump family. That was a surreal moment in covering the sport. I had several of those. That was definitely up there. But uh, interesting to go back to Newark, the Prudential Center. Still trying to figure out where I'm going to stay. If I want to stay in Newark, if I want to stay in New York, if I want to stay in... I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. We'll see. But either way, that is UFC 288. That's May the 6th in uh, Newark, New Jersey. At least it'll be a quick flight. 45-minute flight from Toronto. Gotta love that. That's always a bonus. All right, so there you have it. That is uh, UFC 288 for you. Some nice uh, nice fights added there. Nick Diaz says he wants to fight again as soon as possible. I was thinking about this. Who would you like to see Nick Diaz face if Nick Diaz was going to come back? And he's going to fight, let's say, at middleweight. Who are some fights you'd like to see him against? One that stood out to me, and this is a weird one, is Kevin Holland. I think that Kevin Holland against Nick Diaz would be an interesting fight. Just like from an X's and O's standpoint, like it would be a pretty lopsided fight. I think Holland would probably be like a minus 500 favorite. But I think that uh, that would be an interesting one. I know he wants to fight the best guys, but I mean, Holland is still a good fighter. I'd be eager to see how that one would look. Then there's also Masvidal. Like if, if Burns loses to if uh, Masvidal loses to Burns, I think you could sell a Nick Diaz versus Masvidal fight. It'd be interesting. And another one that I thought would be interesting was Wonder Boy against uh, Nick Diaz. Have Wonder Boy go to 85. Or whatever, some sort of catch weight, and do that. I think that would be a an interesting one as well. And there's also like some of the older guys, like Matt Brown, would be a, an interesting one. You got Court McGee. There are some other names, Brian Barberena, maybe like I, you know, maybe some veterans. But I think you got to put him in there with an attraction, with somebody who actually people kind of would want to see him next to, like a Masvidal. Um, like a Wonder Boy, like a Kevin Holland, something along those lines. So we'll see how it goes. I'm I, I'm interested to see what what he would look like. I actually didn't think he looked that bad against Robbie Lawler. I think a lot of people thought he looked worse than 
He did. He actually looked way better than I thought he was going to look. I had very low expectations, though, admittedly. No disrespect to the guy, but that guy was partying for like three straight years. Posting Instagram posts from like nightclubs. Seems like things are back on the tracks for him, at least now. So I think that uh, that's a wrap for us. Thank you for tuning in. Before we go, we got an interview for you. He is one of the headliners of this weekend's UFC Fight Night card. Hailing from Georgia, the lovely country of Georgia. And we'll be taking on Piotr Jan. It's number two versus number three in the bantamweight division. Perhaps the most stacked division right now in the UFC. And he is Marab Dwalashvili, and he joins us now on the TSN MMA Show. It's a big main event this Saturday, number two versus number three, Marab Dwalashvili against Piotr Jan. Now, I've never heard of you having anything really personal to say about your opponents or feeling emotionally connected to an opponent in the past. It seems like this fight against Piotr Jan is a little bit different. Uh, explain to me what your emotions are going into this fight for that reason. Yeah, you're right. You know, this guy been disrespect my friend and disrespect me. And uh, um, this fight is personal for me. And uh, yeah, he, he's Russian bully and cocky. And I'm going to give him lesson, you know. And so, I mean, he's a good, good fighter, great fighter, but... Um, yeah, just, it's not like uh, other fights, you know, if I win or lose, I don't care much, you know, I have so much respect before Jose Aldo, Maro Morales, Cody Stayman, uh, John Dodson, or Casey Kenny, or all others, you know, uh, but I don't have much respect for Peter, uh, you know, he's a good fighter, maybe good family man, but he's a, a khaki Russian bully, so. It seemed yeah. like in Abu Dhabi, Aljamain and Piotr kind of squashed their beef and were on good terms. Has anything changed since then? No, they cool, you know, like what they're going to do. Aljo beat him and make him humble. And uh, yeah, Aljo always been cool and Aljo has nothing, uh, you know, like, you know, he's good. But uh, Peter, like, starting... Uh, start uh, right there, like you know. When Al- I was mad about him be- uh, after Aljo's first fight, and uh, when Aljo beat him, and I forgive him, and um, I'm like, whatever, just uh, yeah, I don't care. And but in Abu Dhabi, right before his fight with O'Malley, he was pointing me like, oh, this guy is- looks small. This guy is nothing. And uh, he was disrespecting me, me, but he has a fight and I don't want to, like, I, I try to be professional. I don't want to be, uh, I don't want, like, any drama, any fight or anything, like, affect him to right before his fight. And I was very professional, you know, and uh, I was just smiling, joking and uh, everything. But, yeah. So with that in mind, when you got this fight offered to you, were you happy that he was going to be the opponent? Uh, actually, no. I, before, I don't want to fight him because, uh, you know, this is this is not just fight. This is more than fight. You know, this is Russia versus Georgia. I know 
my uh, 20% of Georgia occupied by Russia and uh, uh, I have to win this fight 100%. I don't, I know this is, you know, this fight is not a regular fight, you know. Uh, like I said, if I lose any others, I don't care much. But if I lose with Peter, I'm going to kill myself because this is a big deal, you know. They, the Russia already take 20% of Georgia, so I, I don't want to give them more, you know. This is, uh, this is sports, but... And I want to make my people happy and proud, you know. This is uh, more than fight. Is there a deep animosity between the Georgian people and Russia? Maybe you can give us a little bit of a history lesson because I don't think everybody knows exactly what happened with Georgia and uh, and Russia from past years. It's something that you care very deeply about. Right. So Georgia is very welcome country. You know, we love visitors, we love tourists, you know. Uh, very safe, no criminal. You can leave your car open. You know, nobody will touch it. And uh, and we 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 love every guest whoever comes in our country. You know, even Russians. You know, the Russians usually coming in our country. They have the best time. They love our our culture. They love our food. We treat them well, like like other people. You know, like and uh, but. Uh, like with people, we don't have any issue, you know, like we are cool, warm people, you know, but like, uh, but, but they throw in bombs in capital city and they, they try to take, take over in Georgia. And uh, last time uh, Russia had war with Georgia, it was 2008, I was 17 years old and uh, I was living in my country and it was so scary because Russia threw bombs in capital city and they they take uh, another part of Georgia and uh, right before war was like when I born 1991 they take another part of Georgia Abkhazia so and then uh, and like you know you know like it's so so sad because 20% of Georgia the Russia take because we have a good territory and the, they don't like when we are friends with Europe and we are friends US and because Russia wants to destroy Georgia and Ukraine to make scare of other countries because Georgia and Ukraine we want to go Europe we want to be friends with US and we don't want to go back SSSR like Soviet Union and that's the problem and uh, yeah you know russia man like you know politics they know they don't doing good thing you know they they are corruption country they are big country they have uh, they should be rich like us but they are, the people actually don't have a food in villages you know like russian people in outside of moscow they don't living good they don't have a good lifestyle you know they are they have they're struggling so yeah with, so i'm saying again i don't have any problems with russian people but i have a problem with russian politics you know whatever they did to georgia whatever they doing now to ukraine i'm against the war and uh, everybody should live peace and uh, nobody should tell nobody what to do and if georgia and ukraine wants to be freedom and wants to be far of the europe and far of the uh, like you know the NATO just let us do it you know I don't so that's the problem so that's why my people are supporting me because now this is not like a regular fight this is a little more than fight you know like Russia versus Georgia so at least uh, 
uh, you know, we can win in sport, you know, that's, but that's why this is big responsibility for me. And, uh, I'm gonna try my best to win this fight. You know, this, everything have happened in this fight. It's a fight, of course. And I'm, I'm not fighting somebody like upper camera or something. He's a uh, former champion. He's we all know he's dangerous. He, he always brings in, he's a good fighter, but, um, it's a more responsibility for me to I have to win this fight, you know. Would it mean more for you to win this fight than winning a championship? Actually, yeah, I would say this fight is more important than win championship fight, yes. That's how I look now and that's how it means for my people and for me. You know, this fight definitely means more than championship fight for me. And I know that UFC has instituted a rule against bringing flags into the cage. Uh, I think for the reasons of, you know, political reasons, um, you've kind of found a little bit of a way around this. You got a Georgia tattoo with the uh, the, the borders of your country and the flag over your heart. So um, yeah. you're going to be carrying Georgia with you through all of your fights for the entire yeah, fight. Man. <laughs> exactly, man. And, uh, yeah, so like now we're not allowed to have a flag anymore, but... Uh, but I want to represent my country. That's why I started sport and mixed martial arts because I, I want to represent this is uh, this good competition, man. Like you know, I wanna. I'm proud of be Georgian and uh, proud of living in US in this beautiful free country, beautiful country. And I used to represent two plugs, and uh, now uh, yeah, I'm not allowed to do that and. That's why I got my tattoo, and but now I love my tattoo. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, I I get it why UFC doing this, but uh, we same time we should be free, you know, like to have my own country plug and uh, everything. So, um, but yeah, but now anyway, I have my tattoo here, and uh, so that means a lot for me, and uh, I'm just proud and. Now, this past uh, weekend, we saw Alexa Grasso win a championship. She's the third Mexican champion in three months. How soon do you think we see that with Georgia? We've got yourself, Giga Jakadze, Roman Delize. You're all ranked in the top 10. Do you think that in two, three years, we're going to see uh, you know, several Georgian champions in the UFC by then? Uh, yeah, um, I hope so. You know, We have a really good, good fighters from Georgia. Everybody can become champion. I mean, Ilya Topuria is such a young and hungry and such a talented man. This guy is uh, super strong and uh, uh, yeah, he will become champion for sure. I know that. And then Giga, of course, you know, he's a great striker. Like, you know, I hope he will get fight soon. And he, of course, he, he, he has a big chance to become champion. And Roman Dolize, man, he, I want to wish him good luck in his upcoming fight. And yeah, they all top, and uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah we will have. Um, I think we have uh, Georgian champions soon in UFC, and I'm hoping and I'm happy for my my people. Yeah. I forgot to even mention Ilya. A big omission on my part. So thank you for reminding me about that. Ilya has been on a real roll. Uh, well, thank you for this. Hopefully, the role of Georgian fighters continues into this weekend. Yourself against Piotr Jan in the main event. Appreciate your time, and look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate it. A huge thank you to our guest, Marab Dwalashvili. 
A huge thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in this week. Thank you. Always appreciate it. You can subscribe and review the show wherever podcasts are found. Please do rate and review the show. I appreciate everybody who's done that so far. You get a you know free hour or so of content every single week. In exchange, if you can find it in your heart, no obligation. If you could just give us a nice rating or review, it would mean a lot to me. All of my work can be found at www.aaron.report. Check that out. And until next week, be kind, be well, and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.